the Accessible Altar, a podcast of conversations at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Stephanie Shockley, and with me today is Robin King, and we're your hosts. And today we are in conversation with the Reverend Lindsay Lunham. Lindsay is a neurotypical parent, and she's raising a child who is deeply impacted by autism. Lindsay is also a priest. She's the rector of Zion Episcopal Church in Douglaston, which is in Queens in New York City. Lindsay is the spokesperson for Rhythms of Grace, which is a ministry of worship and faith formation for children and for families with autism. Lindsay introduced Rhythms of Grace in two parishes that she served, and she has also consulted and guided several parishes throughout the church to develop this ministry. Thank you for joining us today, Lindsay. Happy to be here. Um, I want to start with a really simple question. Uh, so I sent you this sort of like longish, rambling-ish email because I'm like, I have this new project. Would you participate? Are you willing to share what your first thought as you read that was? What a brilliant idea for a podcast. I want to listen to this podcast right now. I needed this podcast 10, 13 years ago. Um, and thank you for asking me, but also I don't have a disability, but yeah. I do know and love a lot of people who do um, most close to my heart, my own child. So I was very, um, I'm very aware of, I will speak as, as a parent and a priest and a person who deeply loves uh, people who have different neurologies and disabilities, um, but that's, that's the only perspective that I can speak from. And you were really direct about that in your response, which is when I was really sure you were the right person to ask. Which might, like, it wasn't that I doubted it, but I'm like, oh, I want to do a podcast with Stephanie about faith and disability. And the first person we're emailing is someone who is not disabled, but I think she'll say yes. So, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then I saw your response and I was like, okay, no, I, I know what I, at least I think I know what I'm doing here. And it, Lindsay is a good person to talk to. So thank you for and being really clear about that. Yes. Well, knowing both of you and also trusting that you value that as well and that you really aren't asking me to speak about the autistic experience. Yeah. That means a lot. Um, we sort of jumped into like the middle of your story. Um, can we go back and can you tell us a little bit about how um, disability and chronic illness became a part of your, your life? 
as long as I can remember, <laughs> there okay. has been disability and chronic illness in my life. Uh, both of my parents had chronic illnesses. My dad had kidney disease and uh, my mom has rheumatoid arthritis. And then my brother, he's two years older than me, has um, ocular albinism. So he's legally blind. And so I've just always known that our bodies operate differently, that there's no, uh, this, there's no standard of health <laughs> for me, um, that people need lots of naps and people need accommodations. And I was actually as a child, like devastated when I didn't need glasses that I'm somehow, I somehow have 2020 vision <laughs> you know? and my brother has 2200 vision without glasses, you know, and I was just brokenhearted because I went to so many specialist visits with him and I never got to be the one in the chair and I never got the glasses <laughs> and I never got the therapies and um, always thinking about the one I'm the, I was the healthy one. And even um, as a teenager, I think my parents kind of thought it was odd. I didn't have any chronic illnesses. <laughs> so I was like the purple sheep of the family. I don't know. Um, but I'll never forget uh, the time I realized that my perspective was different was in college. And I had a friend who was um, sick a lot. I get allergies and colds. I mean, not, not a chronic illness necessarily, but I remember I asked him how he was feeling and he said, not awesome. And I thought, wait, that's the standard. Awesome is the standard. Like it was just one of those moments that he was complaining about not feeling awesome. And I thought, oh, wow. I, I've never, like, I've considered awesome to be like an abnormal <laughs> thing. And actually I think that's a gift, right? Because I think there's a large number of people who aren't living on a spectrum where awesome is in a regular, is a regular experience for them. Um, so it did, all of this did prepare me uh, to then become a special needs parent. Mm -hmm. And um, I also say, I don't, I'm really hesitant to do this, but my brother also, this is my armchair diagnosis, but um, is, has probably has what used to be called Asperger's syndrome. Mm -hmm. Um he's mildly, um, autistic. So, um, I have lived with neurodiversity without knowing what that was. And so when I became a parent and my firstborn, uh, actually has had ocular albinism and we knew that within three months of his birth that, um, I, I knew I was prepared to have, a child with a disability, it turned out that wasn't the disability that would be the most impactful <laughs> on his, on our lives. Um, it turned out to be autism. Um, and maybe we were even a little, little slow to pick up on the autism because we attributed a lot of delays to the low vision. I would guess his vision's probably pretty good. Um, it's hard to know because it's hard to test visual acuity in somebody who's not verbal. Yes. There are ways, but it's really hard for him to sit in a chair and look through the, the, I, what are those binocular things, whatever, all the equipment It's just, it's really hard to mm -hmm. test him. So we really don't know his acuity. Um, 
but that's kind of a such an aside. But I think what it did do, knowing that he had ocular albinism, which is uh, albinism of just the eyes, um, is that I would be ready to have to advocate for him and parent him in a way I I wouldn't with a with a typical child. So. Um, so yes, and the other piece of this is I um, had Seamus, this is my son Seamus, he's now 12 and a half, and uh, Seamus was born my last year of seminary. Mm-hmm. So I was ordained uh, three weeks after he was born to the diaconate. I don't really remember that ordination <laughs> liturgy at all. It's all a blur. I think I was praying that I wouldn't, you know, leak on anything. <laughs> Um, and then I wouldn't need to feed him in the middle of the liturgy. But um, having so, moved to a country yeah. where like a year of parental leave is super normative, every U.S. conversation about like the things women wind up doing shortly after giving birth just sounds like mild forms of torture to me. Increasingly, <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and that that sounds so much like a thing that would happen in the priesthood process too unfortunately yeah 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 yes I think after the ordination uh, my bishop said you know we could have we could have um ordained you at a separate time and I was like please don't tell me that now (laughs) now we say this (laughs) yeah this is the wrong time for those words to come out of your mouth right yes yes I think I was supposed to go on a silent retreat that weekend and with a, with a two week old, two and a half week old. And I think, I think I, I think I got a breast infection or something and I had to skip it. And I was so relieved because it was at Holy Cross Monastery in New York. It was, it was, um, it was, there was people, there were people there on silent retreat. Could you imagine going on a retreat and being next to the woman with a newborn? (laughs) Yeah. Accommodations come in all forms. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, but, and I, I hadn't known all that about your family and your parents. So you really like your entire process to ministry was probably in the best sense, in the shadow of all of that knowledge about average being a myth. Right. Yes. And though I don't think I ever connected it until I became a parent myself Mm -hmm. of a child with special needs and then realized um, not even normal wasn't even like the word normal is just left my vocabulary altogether. (laughs) And then I realized, wait a minute, I have been prepared for this my whole life. Mm -hmm. And this is the experience actually, and I'm not, I'm not abnormal. I mean, (laughs) to use that word, Uh, but there are a lot of people living in this shadow of, of not awesome. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We're just society Mm -hmm. tends to ask all of us to pretend we are though. Right. Right. It's the default is, is awesome is the default. Mm -hmm. And if you're not awesome, there's something wrong. Right. Right. And I, and I wonder how, um, I wonder what, in addition to that rather torturous ordination experience, my gosh, um, <laughs> I'm just, I'm just a little, a little shocked about that. Um, in a, so in addition to that sort of experience, um, 
I'm wondering what your what your experience has been like in the church as far as um, as far as the uh, people's understanding or lack thereof of the fact that you know normal is not really a, a thing that is you know that we're all different and a lot of people do not ever get the chance to get to sort of feeling awesome on any given day. Um, I because I find that a lot of the I think in society, a lot of a lot of the assumptions from society filter into the church, whether or not they are in keeping with the values of the church. So, I'm curious about your experience of that, uh, what it's been like for you and your family. Yeah, well, I mean, we started out um, with my family in the church, just the struggles of having two little kids going to church are pretty much the same, but as Seamus got old enough for Sunday school and having some Christian formation, um, I realized that this is a a huge need. How do you teach and instruct um, anybody? But in my case, it was a child about um, growing in the knowledge and love of God. And because you're fulfilling these vows I made at his baptism, when the church is set up to have a Sunday school class where you sit at a little table and you cut things out with scissors and you write things and you attend to a lesson and all these um, social norms and cues you have to follow. And it was just impossible for him to, to go to Sunday school. And when he was really little, it was um, finding a really awesome teenage girl who didn't want to go to Sunday school, but she wanted to hang out with Seamus. And so she would shadow him and that worked out for a little while. But when he got older, uh, he, he just couldn't, it was too disruptive and disruptive of the, of, of the class. But the bigger concern was it just wasn't reaching him, right? We can deal with disruptions. It's, he wasn't learning or nothing was tailored to him and how he encounters the world. And that was, that was really um, disheartening for me and seeing not just my own son, but a lot of children were having a difficult Mm -hmm. time um, engaging with the material because it wasn't for them. It wasn't for their brains. It was for typical brains and realizing more and more that a lot of our liturgy and our social socializing in churches is is set up in a way that if you are not typical, there's no way for you to really engage and grow spiritually. I mean, think about our liturgy, which I love, and we're all Episcopalians, Anglicans. Um, We all love our liturgy, but from a sensory perspective, that organ is really loud. And the creaky pews and standing up and everyone stands up and it's so loud and sitting down and different prayer books and um, sometimes the lessons aren't printed in a leaflet and you have to use your audio uh, mm-hmm. percept. Anyway, the different learning styles in some ways are all, if you're typical, they're all there, right? But if you have other learning needs, the whole liturgy can just be a sensory cacophony (laughs) having done more than one service with a raging migraine oh yeah right yeah and once you start to realize oh if you have any sensory difference 
this liturgy could be torture. Mm-hmm. And to say that as an Anglican. <laughs> it, it's really sad. I mean, I know it's true, but it still like saddens me because part of what I love is all of that sensory richness. Right. So how do we take that and make it accessible? Mm-hmm. Right. And that that was that moment where I realized Seamus can't tolerate this. And I don't think a lot of other people can too. And they're just not coming to church at all. And they also are spiritually hungry and they also have a creator who uh, loves them and they need to know that. And how do we communicate that if they can't even stand to be in the building because of the way it's built and set up and their bodies and their, their neurologies just cannot handle it. (laughs) So this is clearly a question that is really born out of like, the enmeshment, the entirely appropriate enmeshment of your motherhood and your priesthood. Can I ask you a hypothetical question that you may not be able to answer? Um, If you hadn't been ordained, would you and Seamus and your family have become some of the people who just weren't coming to church? Yes. Yes. Either that or uh, my husband would stay home or I'd stay. one, One of us would stay home with Seamus and the other one of us would have brought our neurotypical daughter to church. But that, I mean, that stinks for a weekend, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So yeah. we probably would go infrequently. So yeah, we, we would definitely be people who go infrequently and not never together. And that's sad. Yeah. Well, and I would have a lot of questions about the ripple effects mm-hmm. that that would cause. So you're not only leaving out, the person for whom that service is just too much sensory input, but then you're leaving out the rest of the family and um, you know, that person's family. And, you know, perhaps that person's sister grows up knowing that the church did not welcome her brother, um, et cetera. Right. Like has ripple effects out into the community beyond just the person for whom being in the presence of that organ is torture. Exactly. Well, in the implicit, education for everyone else is people like Seamus don't come to church or people like Seamus don't exist. Yep. Or right. Or not supposed to be seen or not. Yeah. Are not supposed to be around. Right. Right. They only know about people with disabilities from like a really inspirational video they saw on social media. (sighs) That's it. They don't see Right. regular everyday people living with disability. It has yeah. to be inspiring or you're invisible. Right. Yeah. Well, and for all the people who, whose health allows them to go, but church may not be ideal. You don't, you've not created space to have those conversations about accessibility for them. Right. So there are people in all of our pews, my, mine included, who are having suboptimal experiences at church. Yes. I mean, apart from the pandemic. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole other, other conversation we want to do another time. Right. Another podcast. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you had like found this question of how do you, how do you build a church that welcomes your son? Yes. And as a priest, it's also a a fine line, right? Because I don't want, 
am I supposed to build a church for my son? How do I serve everybody, right? Am I being self-serving? I was really nervous about that. In fact, <clears throat> when I, when, when Seamus was three or four, um, Rhythms of Grace, which is a ministry that was developed for families with autism out of the Diocese of Connecticut, um, Audrey Scanlon, who's now the Bishop of I think central Pennsylvania and Linda Snyder, who's a lay woman and a, and a Christian educator. They developed this curriculum for a boy in their parish and developed it into a program. And I think they just published the, the book. There's a book mm. highly recommended called rhythms of grace, but through church publishing. But um, when rhythms of grace came out, uh, a lot of people would send me emails about it or texts about it. You need to check this out. And I thought, that's cool, but how self-serving of me to introduce this ministry for my own son. I just don't feel comfortable with that. Um, and so what I did, and I don't always do this, and this is a good lesson for for all of us. We should be praying more about the decisions, but I prayed about it and said, uh, God, I really want to have this ministry for my son, but it can't just be me. Please send me some, if you want me to do this at my parish, um, or I was the assistant rector at the time, if you want me to, to do it at this parish, then um, send me somebody, to send me somebody. And within a week, a family called me and they had three daughters. I knew two of them very well. I did not know their third daughter because she has autism and okay. she didn't come to church. And they called me to say, and they took me to lunch and they said, we were hoping you can help us connect our daughter with church, our third daughter, um, Sophia. Could you help connect her? And I, it was like, I couldn't believe the prayer was so obviously answered. Like we, we just, you know, she stays home with the babysitter and the rest was come to church, but how is she going to learn about the Bible and how is she going to learn about God? And I'm like, yes, I know, I know what to do. So this family and I went to Connecticut on field trip and we went to rhythms of grace and in the parking lot, we just looked at each other and we're like, yeah, we have to do this. So uh, we, we brought the ministry to that church that was in um, a church in Westchester, St. Barnabas in Irvington. And so we started Rhythms of Grace. And for me, it was this moment of, whew, all right, I'm creating something for Seamus, but it's also for the Greeter family. It's also for a bunch of other families that I didn't even know about that all started coming to Rhythms mm -hmm. of Grace because they could finally come to church. Then it felt like my priesthood and my parenthood were were colliding in a really really great way my vocations were were alive in that moment what a wonderful moment yeah i love that it sounds like that sense of integration where you're mm -hmm. able to line up all of your roles and identities and vocations at one time everything's pointing in the same direction right right and i didn't feel so alone and these families didn't feel so alone. And it was a, we built a community. And I think what was so beautiful with that with that community, and and I've since moved to uh, Queens, New York City, and we have Rhythms of Grace in my current parish. And both of those communities became such safe spaces 
for not just our kids on the spectrum, but our neurotypical siblings and our parents, that we could have a space where our kid shrieking or flapping his hands or running around the circuits around the room the whole time um, was not looked down on. Like it was actually like, oh yeah, my kid does that too. <laughs> you know, carry on. Let's still do the craft. Um, oh, you're coloring the entire craft black. Like the, there's not a white space on the whole piece of paper. Wonderful. Like you're really into coloring. That's awesome. Like there was no judgment. There was no failure. There was no, um, it was, you're going to engage with this pro project, however you do. And mm -hmm. we're just going to trust you're catching it in some way. Um, was really beautiful just to have the other parents had a place where they didn't have to apologize. I'm sorry he's licking that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry he's jumping. I'm sorry he interrupted you. And it's like, no, no, you know, it's this is this is where it's supposed to happen. Like this is what he this is what he does. This is how it makes him comfortable. So there mm -hmm. was no disruption, right? It was there was no such thing as a disruption in that space. I, one of the things I do watch, um, because I we don't have kids is how much society expects parents to apologize. Yeah. And part of what I'm hearing is um, the extra amount that parents of special needs kids apologize. Oh, yeah, definitely. And the extra grace of being in a space where you don't have to do that. Yes. Yes. And watching um, siblings you know, they're doing the craft or they're doing, hearing the Bible story and they're answering the questions that I'm asking. And, you know, it, it's for their sibling, but it's for them too, because they can be in a space where they don't have to be embarrassed yeah. that their sibling is taking clothes off or, or running around or just, just being what the rest of the world would say weird, right? Like, yeah. Because there is no weird here. So it's not embarrassing. So then they can just relax too, and they don't have to worry about anyone making fun of them or making fun of their sibling. They're just able to be a kid in church. And I don't think I'd really connected it until I was I was listening to you talk there. Um, but how much the church has taught kids to be ashamed of their siblings? Yes. Yes. I mean, think about how we're supposed to behave in general, and then especially church, we need to behave better because, mm -hmm. you know, we're sitting in these pews and every, your parenting is on display when you're in a pew, right? And so yep. if you yep. can't sit still, or your kid can't sit still, people are thinking, you know, make them, make them sit down, give them a good spanking, yell at them, or um parents of typical kids have this struggle right and then if it's like yep. kids just kids being kids can't sit in a pew either it's mm -mm. asking them to do something unnatural but they may have the inner resources to kind of pull it together and be quiet for 20 minutes you know but a kid who has a disability or even an adult I shouldn't just say kids that's been mostly my experience but there are adults too that can't can't sit can't make it 20 minutes pretending that they're typical yeah um, can we back up a little bit because I've heard a lot about rhythms of grace I find that it's not 
terribly well known in like the western half of the continent. Uh, so for people who are like, that sounds amazing or strange, could you give, you know, the short synopsis of how that service is set up? And um, maybe for people who don't know much about autism, what are the aspects of it that help make it more accessible? Sure. Well, the the first thing about Rhythms of Grace is it's a separate service. It's its own mm -hmm. service. And I know often the goal is to integrate and have everybody at the 1030 service, but that's just not possible. And that shouldn't be the goal. So first of all, that's off, off the table. This is a real legitimate worship service of, of the church and it could be at any time, but um, it's not um, a way to like, there's no goal, <laughs> no like IEP goal to get them to, to at the primary worship service. It is completely for them and it is designed for them. Um, a lot of churches have special needs services. Um, I know the Catholic church is, is pretty good about this. I'll give them a lot of credit that they'll have like a Saturday night service and they'll call it their special needs service. But the liturgy is exactly the same as all the other services. The only difference is that it's okay if you're flapping your hands or um, maybe lying on the floor or whatever self-stimulating behavior or regulating behavior you need to do um, can happen there. But it's still it's still the liturgy, <laughs> the liturgy. So it, it's almost more of a chance to like silo the people who might be behaving oddly relative to what people expect and less a chance to include them. Exactly. It's not taking into account that maybe they would learn differently or take in information differently, process the, the, sensorily the um, experience differently. And so Rhythms of Grace approaches it as this is how this might might be how you how you learn. So it's the pattern of the liturgy that we have in the Episcopal Church. So you know, as you come in and you take your coat off, and we sit in a circle, and I tell a Bible story, and I always have the same props. I have a Jesus doll, I have a, a Bible, and I always say, you know, hello, this is our story, and uh, it's it's in the Bible, which is God's word to us. And I'll, if it's in the New Testament, I'll say it's in the second half of, of the Bible, and these are the stories about, about Jesus. Or I'll say, if it's Old Testament, I'll say this is a story in the first half of the Bible, and it's a story about God and God's people. And if it's about Jesus, I'll have the Jesus doll, and this is a story about Jesus, God's son, and in this story, and then I'll explain the story. But I always have, almost word for word, the mm -hmm. same preface. So they all are cued. okay. This is story time. And then a very, very short story with lots of props, lots of visuals. And then as soon as the story is over, we experience the story. So we'll have four different stations, sometimes three or four stations. And it's for them to take the information they just heard and integrate it in. So say the story is Jesus calms the storm. Then the activities are um, coloring a picture of Jesus. My uh, Rhythms of Grace uh, kids loved color in, in my parish, so we always have coloring. <laughs> like color something. Um, you can make a storm in a bottle, like with vinegar mm -hmm. and water and glitter. Um, sometimes I'll have a tub of water, 
and some boats in it and and you can actually like make a storm in the water so different different learning styles right kinetic Mm -hmm. kinesthetic and um communication and different different ways to learn and there'll be different stations and they can choose which ones they want to do and some kids do all of them and some kids do one it's all fine some kids do none of them and then we come back together, and sometimes for Jesus cal- Calms the Storm, um, we play a game with the parachute. Remember we did those in elementary school, mm-hmm. the big parachute? <laughs> Love the parachute. So we'll play a parachute game, and sometimes we'll practice calming the storm. So one person will be Jesus, and we'll make the parachute go wild, and then somebody says, peace, be still, and then we're we tighten the parachute. And so we practice that and we're reinforcing this message, which is Jesus calms the storm. Mm -hmm. Jesus gives us peace. So that's the reinforced message throughout the whole service. And then um, we have Eucharist and it depends on how the church is set up. We do the first half in the parish hall, just because we need a big wide open space some people's naves can can accommodate that ours can't so then we go into the church and we have communion and we have a very abbreviated eucharistic prayer and it's as concrete as a eucharistic prayer can possibly be (laughs) which is kind of tricky um but we do that and then we have eucharist and then we sing jesus loves me takes about 40 minutes and it's very formulaic and pretty much the same each time and that gives the kids a lot of comfort and then within that they're able to um, engage so they're able to have communion they're able to hear a bible story and the most important thing is what's reinforced is jesus loves you mm-hmm. and when they sing jesus loves me every time I, I just weep because some of them sing it with such conviction and it's like that's i mean if you did one thing you get one thing out of this this uh, service, if you come home knowing Jesus loves me, you know, we've done our job. <laughs> well, and how, I mean, that's always, I think, a subversively radical thing, but how much more so in people the world often doesn't love. Right. And doesn't know how to love. Right. Right. So Rhythms of Grace is is basically, it's a book. <laughs> um, and the book, it contains, um, I think, 12 lessons. And then you can also order a, a CD-ROM with more lessons. But it, it, it basically gives you everything you need. You know, here's a Bible story, pretty concretely and shortly told. And then here are some ideas for um, crafts that will reinforce that story. And then once you get to know your parish and you and the people who show up you'll know what their gifts and strengths are and what they're into and then you just build some sort of activity that will reinforce that message and then communion and communion really should be at the altar it should be in the church um because it's real it's Mm -hmm. not um a separate i mean it is separate because it needs to be but it is it should go in your uh register as a eucharistic service and um, encountered that way. Well, and I love the focus on being at the altar. Um, one of the things we've talked a lot about a lot um, is, you know, how do we use this space to help the church understand making the altar accessible? Right. That's what the podcast is me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And for, for this um, ministry, I take a little coffee, actually I take the coffee table out of my own office 
and I put it in front of the altar and I sit down mm-hmm. and, the, and a lot of the kids sit on the floor and it just feels more accessible than because they're they're right close they can see exactly what I'm doing they can hear me better um and they can also be a little more comfortable because a lot of them want to they're used to sitting on the floor they can lie down and there's always a few people that are in the pews but most of them like to be up close and it's great like when I do the Eucharistic prayer a lot of times kids peer peer into the chalice like what did you change it like like something happened which I'm like yes something did happen you know like they know it spiritually yeah. something happened because they'll want to look after mm-hmm. it's over um so I like having them right right there as close as they possibly can be to it and it's it's chaotic when we're distributing it's hard you know everyone's sitting down or and it's right it doesn't matter you don't have to stand up for it you know the only requirement is please eat it <laughs> You know, and if you can't eat it, that's okay too, right? I'll if I if I give it to them and they they don't want to put it in their mouth, their parent will eat it, or I'll you know, right? Again, yeah, it's not about actually consuming it, right? Someone consume, can consume it on their behalf. It's about them just being there and being at that table and knowing it's for them. I think one of the things I was I've been thinking as you've been talking about this is I want so much to highlight the difference between, I mean, we talked, I think the word before came up um, like a siloed space, the difference between a space that is designed for a particular group of people and a space that is designed to keep a particular group of people away from other people. And so this, what you're describing, the ministry of rhythms of grace is a space that is designed for a particular group of people, just like our quote, regular liturgies are designed for the way that we do things and for a certain kind of person. But there's nothing, it's really important when people talk about safe spaces and um, spaces that are, you know, set up to cater to one group or the other, that it that, that that's what it is, as opposed to just, we don't want those people with th- this pe- these people with those people, you know. And I, I'm just really struck by that and struck by how interesting I think it would be to sit down and celebrate Eucharist with, with like kids all over the place. And wow. Yeah. And he's hearing wow. them echolalia and, and the, the works, you get the works and it's great. <laughs> wow. It's and great. I, 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 you must be missing this, you know, here we, of course we're in the middle of a pandemic as we're recording this. I mean, you must be missing the opportunity to do things like this right now. I don't know what stage your parish is at, but. I do. And it's, it's hard because um, our kids, you know, can't wear masks and, and that's tricky. And so I, I still am thinking, how can we creatively do this while keeping everybody safe? And that's, that's the tricky part um, because they don't naturally um, follow social distancing. Actually, some of them do, right? Some of them are probably loving social distancing. <laughs> I mean, everyone you know. leaves me alone. <laughs> yeah, this is awesome. But uh, yeah, but then it's it's hard to, um, you know, I, I have uh, one prisoner who loves to um, grab me by the arm and, and shake my hand and wish me um, good morning because... It's we meet on the in the evenings and it's our joke. And then I say, it's not morning, it's good evening. And then he goes, Good morning. And I say, Good evening. And we do this like 37 times. But he likes to shake my hand and wish me wish me good morning at five o'clock. And so 
yeah, like, I can't, I can't not do that. You know, I can't do that. And that's how we, that's how we interact. That's our connection. And so, and singing too. So that's what's unfortunate is so much of our relate relating is not um, safe to do right now. So I miss, I miss them. And I know that their families are really, especially isolated right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, some of the priesthood aspects of your life and disability and the motherhood aspects. Uh, but you really have this like lifelong encounter of not encounter, but loving people who, you know, I loved how you talked about like awesome is not necessarily in the register of their days. I, can you share a little bit about how that has impacted how you pray? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely deepened the um, complexity of my relationship with God and how God relates to to us as humanity and, and to me specifically. Um, you know, a few years ago, when my son got a little bigger, he started having aggression, aggressive behavior, built up just, I think, born of all the frustration of not being able to com- communicate it would well up and, and he'd get, um, he'd get violent. And he had a, he was having some a really rough episodes. And um, I remember, you know, in a really low moment, like just, I had to go, like I shut myself in the bathroom for a minute just to like chill out and take a deep breath. And, and I was really upset and I'm, so I'm in the bathroom in front of the bathroom sink, you know, mirror and, you know, breathing and praying. And I just said, God, you know, can't you see he's suffering? I mean, can't you see my son is suffering? Don't you care? And so clearly God said, yeah, I know exactly what it's like to see a son suffer and feeling that solidarity in that moment. Like, oh yeah, God had to watch his own son (laughs) get tortured, you know, and killed and abused by this world and actually beginning to see Jesus as not neurotypical. So seeing a God, God is a parent, a parent who's seen her child struggle and suffer and seeing Jesus is not typical um, to not have an operating system that is, it's like Jesus is a Mac and we're in a PC world or something. You know, and, and so seeing Jesus is not typical and seeing God as a parent who has also had to endure and witness the world's cruelty and just the pain of, of not fitting in this world is definitely deepened um, my relationship with God and how God relates to me and how God sees me. And also that God sees me as not tip is neurotypical that, that I'm impaired and that I can't see this world the way God does. I can't see reality. I, as Paul says, we see through a glass darkly, right? Yeah. So we are all in some ways impaired, right? <laughs> and so if I, my brain would probably melt if I knew what God knows at this point. I'm not equipped for that. And so seeing myself also um, as 
atypical or actually that there's that I'm not getting, there's something I just can't get mm-hmm. and that God is loving me through that and, and actually making a way, making things accessible, that there is access to God despite my impairments, which I guess we'd say is sin, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, not that disabilities are sin, but, you know, like I'm just, it's, it's this inability to, I'm human. And right. um, yeah, so, so yeah, much deeper, much more, it's helped me accept parts of myself. It's giving, I get, I experience grace on a much deeper level. Can you say more about coming to understand Jesus is not neurotypical? Because I really, like you said that, I was like, ooh. Right? And I was like, oh, wait a second. That is worth thinking about some more. Yeah. I mean, Jesus was human and divine. Therefore, that's a disability, right? (laughs) Or at least it's not typical. (laughs) Jesus is not, like, Jesus knew and understood things differently. I mean, if we want to get very like disability theory here for a minute and all disability is social. Right. Then yeah. Yeah. And that's I mean, what got him killed. It's for very on on trend for like 2020 right now. Exactly. Yeah. Thank Sad you for ways. saying that. Disability is all social, right? That's right. exactly it. And so yeah. like from birth Actually, from conception, Jesus, <laughs> you know, did not fit into our our model of how a human comes into the world and lives, right, and operates. So, yes, so so that's why I'd say Jesus is 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 not typical, um, definitely not neurotypical or spiritual typical. Even though Jesus was fully human, I'm not denying the humanity, but differently abled for sure. <laughs> Which is also um, brought me closer to Mary, um, seeing Mary as as the ultimate special needs mom. And look what she had to watch her son. She taught the word of God to speak, you know, (laughs) and use language. And he is the word, you know, just that alone. Um, Watching her son struggle and people not accept him, maybe not she didn't fully get it either. Right. I mean, she's you, constantly not understanding what his mission's all about. You I mentioned mean, I'm thinking about, Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm wondering if we're thinking about the same thing now, but I'm thinking about, I think it's in Mark where Mary comes to like collect Jesus. Who's just <laughs> behaving a little too strangely. And she's like, no, no, no. Stop saying things they can't understand and, and come home. It'll all be okay. Right. Um, and how often that's actually the role society expects parents of children who are not neurotypical or who have special needs to fulfill. Yes. Like your child is too difficult for us. Take him away now, please. Right. Well, and I also thought of it as just sort of the, the parents, the parental instinct to, um, to sort of protect your child from the harshness and the realities of the world, like the unkindness of the world. And so she's kind of like, you know, we're here, I'm here, I'm here with your brothers and you need to come home. And it, and she's thinking it's going to be fine. We're just, it's going to be fine. If he, we just get him to come home and do sort of whatever regular things he's supposed to do, he's going to be okay. Cause we know he's like, I, because she is a mother knows better. She doesn't trust the, like, she doesn't trust the world. The world is not, she knows that, 
she's been around long enough that she knows the world's not trustworthy. And so she's thinking maybe if I just, I mean, I know he's, he's an adult, but if I just try to protect him, you know, I could sort of, that is a thing that parents think like, well, how, you know, how can I, how can I not do something? Because look what's going on. Right. Or that story of Jesus getting lost in the temple, you know, and here's Jesus like, yeah, I'm going to go hang out. (laughs) I belong here. And not even considering the fact that his parents were losing their minds over, over not knowing where he was. I mean, a lot of kids do that, you know, (laughs) Yeah, but, but it just, his reaction was like, well, yeah, of course I'm here is so not typical. And I'm like, but that is, it's autistic. I mean, I'm not calling Jesus autistic, but that was pretty autistic. Like I found my happy spot. Yeah. What's your deal? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, it's been three days. He's like, oh, really? Has it been? I've just been, you know, grooving over here in the temple, (laughs) like loving it, being me. And you guys are the one with the problem, not me. And what even is time? Right. Which is so true. Often, I think autistic people do teach us, like, "What's your deal?" Typical people. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm fine, or I'm doing my thing. You're the one with the problem, not me. We have this really awesome children's book, and it's called Johnny Doesn't Flap, and it's written from the perspective of a person with autism, and it's he's the normal one. So he's talking about his friend Johnny. And Johnny, when Johnny gets excited, he holds his hand still. And Johnny doesn't have any special interests, like who made the elevator or different models of fire engines. He knows a little bit about a lot of different things, but that's okay. He's different and I still like him. And this whole book goes on and on about Johnny makes eye contact when he has to look at you when he's talking to you. But that's just how Johnny is. Okay, I now need that book. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I now need that book because that sounds awesome. Nice think about Jesus that way, though, right? Like, well, why are you guys freaking out? I'm in my father's house. <laughs> right. And what do you mean you look at other people and you don't see, like, the image of God in them? Like, <laughs> Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah, or just have perspective, right? Like perspective that, you know, goes beyond perspective that either stays in this moment or that goes, you know, speaking of Jesus, that goes beyond this moment, you know, you can see or imagine something beyond just what you want in this moment. Right. You know, which is like kind of where our perspective as human beings breaks, just really breaks down. Yeah. You know. We'll put a link to Rhythms of Grace in the notes for this. Are there any other resources you would like to make sure people know about? Hmm. Um, you know, maybe the book, uh, Not Even Wrong by Paul Collins. Um, he's also an autism parent and, you know, he has a famous quote, which I think has become like a meme, but it was <clears throat> pounding a square peg into a round hole ruins the peg and damages the hole. And thinking like that is what our culture does with people who are different and that maybe we we need to stop and and think about making square holes and (laughs) square pegs and (laughs) on and on and on. Um, Quit pounding on things. Uh, 
but his book, Not Even Wrong, the whole idea is is to be free of the idea, at least in this case, it's autism, that autism isn't a brokenness or that there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with Seamus. He's not even wrong. Like, it's not even the, like, that's not even the question. It's not even the right question to ask. Um, and actually, that gets back to, I think, a theological point, which is, um, you know, thinking about thinking about each our eternal lives and and after we are resurrected and we are made whole um i've often thought i wonder if my son will be autistic and i i it's one of those questions that i actually don't think about too long i think i think he will be cuz he is mm-hmm. like that's him he he's he's not he, i don't even know who he would be without autism yeah. and so if there if there was a pill that made him typical, I, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it to him. What I'd rather do is give a pill to our culture, <laughs> you know, that if things were set up differently, he wouldn't struggle. It's not him. And it's I society. think, yeah. And I got getting to your point, Robin, about dis- all disability is really, actually a social problem is mm-hmm. exactly it. And so thinking about what if we thought and taught, people about their own bodies or their own neurologies is not broken or impaired as much as it's just the world is broken and impaired that can't accommodate or there's just we're smart enough and we have enough resources that everything should be in large print and set up like an airport so you can navigate the grocery store just as easily you know everything should be um, taught in different ways that different learning mm-hmm. styles can accept. It could just, it's not that hard if we cared. Yep. So that's the pill or the cure right. I would like, right. <laughs> not the cure of right. autism. <laughs> right. The structural, and I mean, I mean that both literally physically, but also figuratively, the structural um, issues in society where we could do this. It's a, it's a matter of will. It's not a matter of resources. It's a matter of will. Right. Yeah. Well, and I think that ties back to what you're talking about in terms of the non-neurotypicalness of Jesus and the harm society did to him and the harm that has left in the in the world and in the church. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this and this it, it also it connects with people who are um, LGBTQ and different sexualities. And it has to do with, you know, people with different races. I mean, it's all the same problem, right? Yep. And it goes back to your ordination story in a world yeah. that views the standard body as male. We don't make accommodations. We don't make space and accessibility for bodies that are not male as easily. Right. But we're about to go down a deep rabbit. <laughs> That's another episode. That's a whole other this, is, this is the difference between one episode and like three different ones. <laughs> Invite me back for that one. <laughs> oh, we will. We will have to have you back for some of that. <laughs> um, I think the last question I have for you is: um, if you got, if you got like all the power in the church, which is as we all know somewhat circumspect <laughs> all the power all the power but all we're gonna power. give all of it to you for this there question you wow. <laughs> i know um 
And and you were to, you know, sort of set like benchmarks for churches for goals for inclusion and accessibility over like a month, a decade and and or or a year in there. What were some of the things you would love to be able to, you know, drop in on a church in a in a month or in a year or in a decade and, and see being different or being universal? That's a great question. I think the first the, the image that just popped into my head was doors. I want to see a lot of different entrances. And mm. I, I don't just mean an, an elevator or um, a wheelchair ramp, although I do ex- mean exactly that. But I also mean lots of ways to enter the church, front doors, side doors, back doors, and also metaphorically different ways to enter the church. Um, ways to be in the church. Um, we often expect people to come in and, you know, after two or three weeks, they go to coffee hour and, you know, within a few months, they're in some sort of group. Within a year, they're on the vestry, right, or in the guild. And there's this, like, path to becoming part of the community. And what I would love to see is more a more porous space mm-hmm. where there's ways to be in the community and exits too. I mean, those doors are two ways that that people can come in and be fed and to recognize that people are fed in different ways. And that while for me as an extrovert and as a neurotypical person, I love church and coffee hour, but that's hell for other people. So how yeah. do we allow lots of different ways to access what we're offering and what hopefully we're offering is the gospel. We're, op- we're offering uh, freedom in Christ. Mm-hmm. We're offering, uh, yeah, freedom to be who we are and to accept the love of God. So if we're doing that, then um, there needs to be lots of different ways to access that. So I want, that's what I want to see more than just one door. Part of what I hear in that is a disinvestment from the security of the institution, because that pathway you describe, um, you know, you come to church, you go to coffee hour, you join a committee, you get on vestry. I mean, there are good and lovely things about that, but that also secures the future of the institution of the church, which is sometimes, but not always the same as the good news of the gospel. That's right. That's right. And and it will feed everyone if we're able mm-hmm. to let go of those things. I mean, even typical people, it will feed. I mean, think about how unnatural it is for um, some of the things we ask children to do in church. And if we don't want them to go downstairs for Sunday school, which is, you know, a model that a lot of people talk about, let's keep kids in church. Well, if we expect expect them to be in that space, then we need to have space for them to be in in their bodies and be who they are and not learn after a few weeks of being at this church you will learn to sit nicely in the pew with your hands on your lap for 45 minutes to an hour like that's just not going to happen so how do we tell children they're welcome to be who they are and to reach them and teach them in a way so either we need to adjust how we do our beautiful liturgies to include them and the ways they learn 
or we provide a Sunday school time that also is accessible and it's how they learn. But yeah. we can't do it either. We can't do it both ways. We have to let go of this image of what a beautiful liturgy is. And I do love liturgy and I'm not knocking liturgy at all. But if you're really married to it, then you need to have some alternatives mm-hmm. and some other ways to to be in to just to access it. I mean, that's that's the word. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the things I'm frequently reminded of is most of the things that are good for people with disabilities are actually not so secretly really good for people without them. Yes. And yes. like the secret conspiracy of the world is to not let people figure that out somehow. Right. Having a microphone system that can loop into a hearing aid is going to help even right. somebody who has perfect hearing, right? Mm-hmm. Having a bulletin printed in a font that's readable, <laughs> larger print, is I, li- I like reading large print. It gives my eyes a break, you know? So let's do it. It's not that hard, right? It's just, we're all going to be fed by it. Mm-hmm. Right. I think as some, as a visually impaired person, I think uh, I love airports. I'm a huge fan of air- of airports and one of the reasons is because for my particular vision, they are very, very accessible because everything's in giant print. Gate 12B, can't miss it, you know? And it's not designed for me. It's designed for people who are stressed, who are in a hurry, who are trying to figure out where they need to be. It's designed for all of us, but it happens to make my life easier. But it really, you know, it just speaks to that thing of those spaces are designed to help everybody figure out how to get what they need and where they're going, you know? And, and so that's just to be, the airport is always the example of, it's not accessible in every way, but in, but certainly visually it's very accessible. It's an example of one, it's sort of one example to me of what it looks like when something is designed to make it easier to see where things are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's absolutely true, at least, in that example, uh, to me, that making it better for one group of people makes it better for everybody else. Well, I think even coming into a community and seeing how a parish embraces people with differences means that maybe that means these people and maybe God will accept me with my Mm -hmm. issues, right? And so it sends such an important message that we have people being who they are and being accepted or even being um, building the community around, around them means that, that this is the lengths they'll go to include somebody. They'll include me as well. So it's, it does send a, a huge message message to everybody. And the, the implicit message is so, so significant. And that's been one of the recurring themes, I think, of this, um, this conversation and your perspective on the church. Thank you. Yeah, thanks.
Thank you for joining us for this conversation with Lindsay Lundham about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation and partners about autism and faith. Our liner notes for this episode will include links to all of the books and resources Lindsay mentioned. That includes the Rhythms of Grace website, a link to buy the book, Not Even Wrong by Paul Collins, and the children's book, Johnny Doesn't Flap. Stephanie, what stuck with you after that interview? Well, I love this interview. We covered so many things, and um, I learned so much talking with Lindsay. I think one thing, I'm just going to pick one for now, but I think one thing that really stuck with me is um, when we asked Lindsay about her experience with illness and disability, um, she started telling us about growing up and her family and uh, people that she was close to having a variety of illnesses and disabilities and what that was like and what that meant to her. And I think it's a really important thing that she highlighted there that um, for many of us, it's not that there's just like this one thing that happened to somebody that we know, or this one thing that happened to us. Um, but that this is an issue that is really for everybody, um, that it impacts most people, if not all people in our congregations in really personal ways. And that's something that, um, you can take away from this interview, I think, and, and, and learn from, and, and keep in mind. Somewhere you and I had like this silly conversation about our visual, like our mental image when we say intersection of faith and disability. Um, and I mentioned that mine is like this, this sine wave and it keeps crossing the X axis, which mm-hmm. I, yes, I have too many math geeks in my family, but <laughs> um, that, that really reminded me of that, that, you know, we all have all these different points where this is, is something that has had impact in our lives. Oh, if we only have to pick one, um, and I think some of it is, uh, and we're recording this in sort of the lead up to Advent, um, and thinking of Mary as the first special needs mom, because we spend, in the church, we spend so much of the season focused on, like, baby Jesus and and, and young Jesus, and trying to imagine like, what are the weird conversations Mary wound up having with little Jesus that none of the other moms would have had to have in the same way? Right. Mary is the first special needs mom. Absolutely. Yes. Yes, Um, absolutely. I've never thought of that before. And it makes so much sense. I know. Um, So much of, of the theology we touch on on the end has just really kept like revolving in my head. Again, I think in part because we're coming into this, real big focus on the incarnation and some of that, but um, it's also this depth of theology that the church has, has not let have that discussion happen. Um, The other thing, because I may give myself two. Uh, So in my part of the world, in part because of our deep tie to England, didn't have that messy little revolution up here. Um, the Church of England's fresh expressions have had a a bigger impact on local churches, at least in my diocese. Um, And which is, you know, basically the Church of England trying to figure out how to do church in the late 20th and early 21st century. But they just did their first longitudinal study of which of those 
has the most long-term impact in creating new believers. And it's a program called Messy Church, which is structured really, really similarly to Rhythms of Grace, which I'd never put together before. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm like, huh, the thing that works best is the thing that works best for all sorts of people's abilities. Right. I feel like there's a whole meta lesson for us in that. Right. Uh, We are so glad you joined us for this. We do encourage you to find local conversation partners um, and we will have the link to Rhythms of Grace if that's something you want to explore further in your conversations. You've been listening to The Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. For additional information about anything we talked about in this show, including a transcript of the show and show notes, uh, check out our website, www.accessiblealter.com. We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Alter. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Alter. If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, email us at accessiblealter at gmail.com. Thank you.